Pray. Lord, I thank you for this time we can look at your word. I pray, God, that we would learn from the Apostle Paul and what you've given him for us. And we thank you for your word that you have revealed that's inspired and inerrant. And I pray today, God, that we would submit to it and that you would teach us how we are to walk in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, Titus, Titus this morning, Titus chapter one. This morning we're going to conclude chapter one. I've been, we've been spending some time here looking at Paul's giving us God's design for the church. And, and this morning I've entitled uh, the message, Standing on the Trustworthy Word. Standing on the Trustworthy Word. This morning, really three goals as we look at the last few verses of chapter one. And what we're going to try to do is really get a sense of the, the, the purpose of godly leadership in the life of the local church. And so this morning, why don't we jump in by looking at a review of what we have seen. What have we looked at so far about the characteristics of elders in the church? What are they about if you were going to explain to somebody, what are elders? What do they do? We've seen three characteristics. We've seen godly character. And you go back into verse 5, if you've not been with us, and you go down to about verse 8. And what you look at there is a not a perfect individual, but a, a person, a man that has been influenced and changed by the grace of God so that he becomes predictable. He becomes predictable. And we see it not only in his family life, but we see it in his personality. We see it in his interactions with other people. The transforming grace of God changes our lives and changes the way we interact, changes the way we respond. We read there in verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. We looked at that phrase. He's a faithful man. He's a one-woman man. And his children are believers. I, I believe there that it's speaking of these are faithful children, speaking of the fact that this is an individual who can manage his household. And that's seen in the fact that they're not you know, acting in a way of debauchery. While they're under his roof, they're not acting in a way that shows that he does not have control of his home. They're not acting in an insubordinate way. But it goes on, an overseer is God's steward. An overseer is God's steward. I love that because when you get unhealthy church leadership, church pastoral leadership, it goes to people's heads. They think that they're the one that has the authority. They like the power trip. They like the control. But all they are is stewards. They're stewards. It's not theirs. It's God's. They're simply a steward of God. He must be above reproach. And then it says he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And then it continues, and you see the kind of characteristics that you need of leaders in a church. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. And then we moved into verse 9 where we have been sticking to the, the, the call of the ministry and how this person and this man relates to the word of God. So what do we see? The review so far is godly character. 
but not only godly character, but a firm grip. He has to have a firm grip to the trustworthy word where you find churches and you find leaders begin to wonder is when they lose a firm grip of the word. When they drift from the word that was given to the apostles, you're in trouble. There's a firm grip. They, they're faithful. I love this because in 2 Timothy, it's the call that Paul gives to Timothy of preach the word. And listen to what he says. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off and into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, so you got a person that is not only known for godly character, but you got an individual who is absolutely going to stick to the word. He's going to be faithful to the trustworthy word. And, and the third characteristic that you see here, he a, has a bold stance. He is a shepherd who desires to guide the sheep and to graze the sheep, but you can better believe it, he's going to guard them. He's going to guard the sheep. He's going to rebuke those who contradict it. There's three words here that show us this uh, fierceness of, of defense. Look at verse 9. Look how it says, he rebukes those who contradict it. Verse 11, he speaks of this in something very serious. They must be silenced. The third phrase, rebuke them sharply in verse 13. He has to have a backbone. He can't be a person that won't be willing to stand up against error. I tell you, one of the exciting things that I've been reminded of, I'm learning so much on our Sunday night class, is that when we look back in church history, we look at men like Athanasius. You may be like, who in the world's Athanasius? Athanasius was a deacon in a church, and the pastor was a guy by the name of Alexander. Alexander's preaching through the Bible around the fourth century. And he's preaching through the Bible and the, the gospel of John. And he's speaking about Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And there was a presbyter. There was another elder in the church, a guy by the name of Arius. And Arius began to teach the people. He said, you know, there was a time when Jesus was not. And Alexander was like, I mean, Alexander and a guy by the name of Athanasius says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. And his fight and his stance for the truth brought about what we find in the Nicene Creed. And we see guys like Basil and guys like Gregory, two Gregories that were really important. And, and they were, uh, think of Gregory French, the uh, two Gregories that fought for the truth. And so what you find is, is like one of the encouragements you gain from looking back at the past is to realize that God has raised up people who will make a bold defense for the faith. And if you're going to have godly leadership in a church, you've got to stick to the truth of the word of God. You've got to stick to the truth. You've got to be firm with the truth. You've got to hold fast to the truth. And you've got to protect it from error. It's in to protect the people from error. 
these phrases, this, 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 this emphasis here, and there's nothing new under the sun. Do you realize how many belief systems are in our world today? I'm comforted by that because you could look at where Crete is and you could look at the influence of the danger of what they were being taught, but it really doesn't matter whether you go to Crete, whether you go to Rome in the third century, whether you go to Constantinople in the ninth century, wherever you are, in whatever context you're in, there's belief systems, there's persuaders, there's influencers of those beliefs, and elders in whatever context God places them are called to minister in those contexts, holding fast and firm to the trustworthy word. So you think about it, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're in Scottsboro, if you're in Portland, if you're in, if you're in Maine, it doesn't matter where you are in the U.S., every pocket of every place within this country is going to have error within its surroundings. But what do you do? You have to speak the truth of God's word, and you have to be willing to make a bold stance. We're in an area that has a lot of hodgepodge religious teachings, borrow something from over here, borrow something from over here. And how do we minister in that area, this area? We do it with the love of Christ. We do it with the gracious understanding that we would not be in a place of God's grace apart from God's grace. But we do it with a bold, firm grip on the word of God that stands to the true gospel and stands to the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. So how do we have healthy biblical churches? We need healthy biblical leadership. We need leadership with godly character. We need leadership with a firm grip. We need leadership with a bold stance. So we review what we've seen so far, but the second goal this morning to understand this passage, let's investigate those who were opposed. Let's go a little further. Let's investigate what's going on here. And under the second point, I want us to look at five investigating questions. The first one, who are these people? We get a clue of this in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, now that is really interesting because the first question that I would have in reading verse 10 is the question, is he speaking about the Judaizers? Do you remember the Judaizers? We see them all over the place in the New Testament. The Judaizers were a group of people that really struggled, and they came out on the wrong side of the right place. They came up with false teaching. They struggled with understanding how the new covenant affected the Mosaic law. And they believed, they got so twisted in their understanding of the gospel, they said in order to be saved, you not only had to believe on Jesus Christ, but you had to be circumcised. And they emphasized it at all costs. And so Paul was saying, wait a minute, if you add works 
to a gospel of grace, you no longer have a gospel. And so it could be that he's speaking of the Judaizers. Another thing that gives us a clue of the Jewish nature of this teaching is down in verse 14. Look what he says. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So one thing that we know for certain whether it's the Judaizers or it's another type of Jewish error, we know in the New Testament that sometimes when he speaks of the circumcision, he's speaking of the Judaizers. But sometimes when he speaks or the, the New Testament writers speak of the circumcision, they're simply speaking of the Jews. So we have to discern here. But we know this, that there was a Jewish influence in Crete. I told you this last time, and I want to read you Acts chapter 2. You remember Acts chapter 2? It's Pentecost. Jews have made pilgrimage to where? To Jerusalem. And telling us uh, when, when the miraculous took place and the tongues were heard in their own languages. These tongues were known languages that were heard and understood in their own dialect. And it says in verse 8 of Acts 2, And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, verse 10, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. And then listen to verse 11. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, there they are, the people from Crete. There was a Jewish influence in Crete that were present at Pentecost. And so we know that Jews were there at Crete. They were there and they had to deal with people who were distorting this error. You remember, if it was the Judaizers, and we can at least speculate, if it was part of this, the Judaizers, we'll learn here in verse 15 later on when he speaks about the pure, it appears that part of this error had an emphasis on the dietary laws because he's going to speak about it in such a way to make you think about food that's clean, about that which is pure. And so one of the, the commands that they taught, you remember in, uh, in Galatians, this was serious stuff. If, again, it really doesn't matter ultimately because what we need to know more than anything is that this was error that was Jewish in nature that was distorting the gospel of Christ. That's what we can land on. But I want to remind you what Paul said about circumcision. He said in Galatians 2.4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. He was pretty adamant about this, wasn't he? In chapter 5, verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul would say to anyone who thought they could be justified 
based on their own righteousness, he basically would say, all right, I got one for you. Don't stop there. Keep the whole law. If you want to justify yourself by good, clean living, if you want to justify yourself by being a good person in the society, by being someone who gives to charity, by someone who is very kind in the community, if that's the basis of how you think you're going to be accepted before a holy God, then go on and keep all the laws because now you've neglected grace and you're making it your priority and standard to be justified by law-keeping. The gospel of Christ teaches us that's impossible. And our only hope is the grace of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is basically warning these people. And he's saying, look, so when we look at who are they, they're Jewish in nature, very likely the Judaizers, the legalists that sought to be justified by circumcision. There was actually something I came across what I, I thought was fairly fascinating. Josephus is a Jewish historian. It's extra biblical, so this is not scripture, but it's fascinating. Josephus tells of a young man who deceived many Jews on Crete. Philo, and then again, Philo writes of the numerous Jewish settlers in all quarters of the known world, especially he speaks of Crete. So if it's possible, whoever this is, whatever this error is, here's the problem. Galatians 1.6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So we know that it was Jewish in nature, very likely the Judaizers or something similar to Jewish legalism. But second question is we try to investigate these who oppose. Number two, what were they known for? What was their character? We've looked at this. Look at some of the things we've already learned. Number verse nine, look at what they're known for. They're to... The elder Titus is to rebuke those who what? Contradict it. They speak against the truth. They live opposed to the truth. Look at verse 10. They're called insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. Again, especially those of the circumcision party. Verse 12, he basically says, you know, the reputation of the Cretans holds true when it comes to these people as well. And he's speaking of the reality. There was a guy that was an ancient poet, lived about 8th century B.C. Epimenides was his name. And he said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul's like, hey. The, the, the testimony is true in this case as well. And they're devoted to Jewish myths, commandments of people who turn away from the truth. And notice their effect. What was the effect in their ministry, not their ministry, in their false teaching? Their effect, verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. False teaching upsets families. There's... False ideas have victims. I, I can't tell you, over the years, it's, it's really uh, sad 
when I've sat down with people who have been warped by false teaching. I sat down with a guy once years ago that had come to trust Christ, and he lived with the baggage of being told that he was outside of the grace of God. He had fallen into drug addiction. And the church he was in on the mountain told him he had no hope, that he could never be saved. And and he came to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a meth addict, he believed there was hope for him, rightfully so. And he trusted on the good news of Christ. And you know what's amazing? Christ Jesus set him free. I've heard the story, you know, when, when Charlie's DA was DA all those years, and when he would tell me about the drug campaigns against meth, and I'd hear about the statistics of those who were crippled by that addiction and how it was unlikely that even one out of 100 could come off of it. And here was a man that came off of it. And he was a man who wanted to proclaim Christ. And to this day is sober. To this day, stayed off of it. It's been like 10 years now. And he came to me and we sat down and he said, you know what? He goes, I know the truth, but I've got to continue to dwell on the truth because I was taught for years. I had no hope of forgiveness. False teaching that upsets whole families. I tell you, you know, it's nothing... What a privilege to proclaim the freedom that is in Jesus Christ. The freedom and the hope for sinners. I tell you, if there's not hope for the meth addict, there's no hope for me. If there's not hope for, I mean, you think about like the root of the problem is the the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, right? It's the, the human heart that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now when we look at the New Testament, we see this gracious message of freedom and hope for the sinner because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the elder in the church of Jesus is going to have to have a backbone and he's going to have to stand up against false teachings that distort the purity of of the message of the gospel. And and that's what we see here. He has a seriousness to him because he understands what's at stake. What is the motive? So, so far as we've investigated those who oppose, we've seen they're Jewish in nature, very likely Jewish legalists, possibly Judaizers. But what is their character? It's, It's bad. It's they, they are selfish. They, they basically have the characteristics of what Paul would say are the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5.19. What else? Their effect. They're upsetting whole families. They're having a drastic negative impact on these communities. They're bringing error in the church. Eternity is at stake, and they're going at it in a way of distortion. What is their motive? What does it tell us about their motive? Look at verse 11. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. False teachers love money. I was reading a quote that said false teachers love money, they crave money, and they talk about money. 
1 Timothy chapter 6, they imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. I, I saw this quote too. Um, there's a guy who's a, a false prosperity pastor in Atlanta. His name's Creflo Dollar. You know what Creflo said? He said, you're a fool for Christ, so you might as well be a rich fool. It's a distortion. It's a false reality. But what is the one thing that can change them? That's my fourth question. What is the one thing that can change them? This is exciting. There's hope in this. There's hope. Verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Now, you almost can get the feel here that rebuking is some sense of, like, if you misunderstand Paul, you can almost be like, wow, he's pretty hard. He's just calling out rebuke, but he does it through the understanding that he's the chief of all sinners. Remember, he said he called himself the chief of all sinners. You got to remember, here is a man that was killing Christians, seeking to stamp out the grace of God. And what was it that changed him? He was transformed by Jesus. So he says this. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. I love this because it takes one to know one. If we see ourselves as poor in spirit, if we see ourselves spiritually bankrupt apart from the gospel of Jesus' grace, there's hope for anyone. <laughs> Amen? We can't look at anyone with the mentality that we're better than them. Why? Because we were bankrupt spiritually, and apart from the goodness of Christ, we're lost in our sin. So get this. Why can we show mercy? Because we've experienced mercy. We've experienced mercy. I, I, I tell you, it, it's, it's a good way to check our hearts, isn't it? The way that we react to sinfulness, the way we react to people who are stuck in their sin, it reveals a lot about us. They may be sound in the faith. And, and, and what, it, I love this, rebuke them sharply. And, and what would that mean, rebuke them sharply? Here's a man that's called to hold firm to the trustworthy word. So just as Paul said to Timothy, preach the word, preach sound doctrine. So how are you going to rebuke them? You're going to rebuke them with the word of God. It's similar to Timothy when Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, instruction, and profitable for reproof. And what does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit will take the word of God and has the ability to change the human heart, to convince the human that what the revelation about the human is correct. You, you remember I told you that uh, I can relate to growing up when... Uh, I'd be with my sister and at 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, and, uh, and, and, and I'd get in trouble. And, um, and Stephanie seemed to always win those battles with mom and dad. I don't know what she did, but she usually got the, uh, I probably was guilty, just deceived. But they would be like, Stephen, you're wrong. And a lot of times I was thinking, no, 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 I am not wrong. She's wrong. She is dead wrong, and I was convinced. So even though I was in trouble and getting punished for being wrong, I didn't believe I was wrong for one second. 
But, but this is a word that speaks of when the Holy Spirit rebukes and it brings salvation, the, the sinner becomes convinced of the truth of the rebuke. That's the gospel. The Holy Spirit does a work where all of a sudden, it's not just someone telling me something. The Holy Spirit brings me in agreement with the very word that rebukes me. And Paul says that they may be sound in the faith. But listen to Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's, that's the ammo that's the hope of the gospel preacher. The gospel preacher believes that ultimately he can't control when a person comes to Christ. He can't manipulate them. He can't get emotional enough to make them believe. His conviction is that it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit to bring about true conversion. And what's the means through which the Holy Spirit converts people and changes them through the preaching of the word of God? Now think about it. If you don't believe that, you resort to man-made methods in order to bring about the results that you're hoping to achieve. But if you believe that you can't do this, that nobody's going to take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow Christ, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you stick to the trustworthy word, and you proclaim it. Now, think about it. Why would a man stand behind a pulpit why would he stand behind a pulpit and go through the scripture unless he firmly believed it was the Holy Spirit who could grow up his people through the word of God? And why would he resort to going to the word of God to those who opposed it unless he believed it was the power of the word that would bring about the change in their life? It would be the power of the word that they would be accountable to. I love this because there's hope in this. But what is the root of the problem? Our last investigative question under point number two. What's the root of the problem? Look at verse 15. Here's the problem. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, wait a minute. This is fascinating. To the pure, all things are pure. It reminds me of uh, Matthew 23 when Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Do you realize that purity can only be experienced through the cleansing power of the Lord Jesus Christ? The only way we can experience cleansing is through salvation. It's through a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And now that inward work of purity is going to give me the opportunity to walk in purity and to experience the freedom and the grace of the gospel. But he's opposing, he's showing them something here. The problem with these false teachers is that it appears they emphasized purity. I want to read you a quote here that I think nails this. It says, Jewish legalism, like every other form of legalism, 
presume that a person can make himself acceptable to God by meticulously observing certain ceremonies and traditions that were considered good and obligatory, and by just as meticulously avoiding those that were considered evil. The idea that by doing or not doing certain things, a person is able by his own power and merit to please and reconcile himself to God has always been the basic heresy of sacramental, sacerdotal, or ritualistic religion. Whatever its form, Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Islamic, or other, the basic heresy of every false religious system is works righteousness. And it appears what's going on here, the word pure makes a lot of people think that some of these commands that they were distorting, that some of these Jewish myths that they were holding on to had to do with their Focus on the external that made us clean. Jesus taught so much about this. One has to be pure inwardly before one can live pure outwardly. But the problem is this. Those that place the emphasis on external purity, looking good on the outside, focusing on ritual, focusing on ceremony, they don't understand that if they're inwardly defiled and unbelieving, outwardly their deeds will always be tainted by the reality of their condition of their hearts. It reminds you of uh, if there's no root, there's no true fruit. One has to be in Christ in order to be able to live with good works. Good works flow out of grace. Good works don't, good, we don't earn our salvation by good works. God's grace is what freely saves us. And now that his grace has worked in us, inwardly we are pure because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And now God in us by the power of his spirit enables us to live differently. And that's what he says in verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for every good work. What's the problem here? We see all these realities. The root of the problem is the problem of their hearts. Stott says they have a false understanding of purity. Like the Pharisees, they prize external and ritual purity above the true purity, which is internal and moral. It is not only that inward and spiritual purity is paramount, but once we've been made clean inwardly, Jesus said everything will be clean for you. Isn't it interesting that... uh, those that focus so much on the external, if they misunderstand the gospel, they distort it at its core, and they focus just on deeds, and they misunderstand the heart. But God has to change our heart. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient. They're abominable is the word. They're disobedient. They are unwilling to be persuaded. Did you see this last phrase? They are unfit for 
any good work. Now, this is fascinating to me. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he's speaking about the power of the word. And you remember what he says in verse 17? These people are unfit for any good work. But in 2 Timothy, Paul says, all scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness in order that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. On one side, they're unfit. On the other side, under pure doctrine, they are equipped. So we see these first two. We see a review of the characteristic of elders and the heart of it. We see an investigation of those who are opposed. But the final goal and observation this morning is thirdly, let's observe the contrast. Look what he says in verse 1 of Titus chapter 2. But as for you, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now we learned about the false teachers. Man, we learned a lot about them. We learned about their motive. We learned about their focus. We learned about their character. We learned about the effects of their teaching. We learned about their contradiction of the truth. We learned about the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And now he says, but for you, Titus, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. I love this. Here's a guy, Paul had been shaped by the word, changed by the word. Titus had been shaped by the word, changed by the word. His, his fellow minister, Timothy, had been shaped by the word, changed by the word. And I love it, it goes back to Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And then he says those precious words, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. <laughs> Love it. Um, I was thinking about, you know, the, the call of eldership, the call of a church of Jesus that's faithful. And I, I thought about our church's mission statement in Colossians chapter one. It, it fits right at the heart of this. I hope you see this. It's such a encouragement and challenge at the same time. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, listen to what Paul says. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, him we proclaim. Jesus is the one we're going to proclaim. We're going to warn people. We're going to teach people. How is, he, how is he going to warn? How is he going to teach? What's the way in which he's going to proclaim Christ? It's going to be through the sound doctrine that was given by God, not only through the prophets in the Old Testament, not only through the first five books of the Old Testament, all the writings of the Old all the writings of the new. He was going to focus on the word of God. And it was through the word of God that people would grow up into godliness, that people would grow up into sanctification and what that means. So we look at this this morning. We see the marks of those who teach truth, the marks of those who teach error. And Paul tells Titus, teach 
what accords with sound doctrine. The word sound, again, means healthy. Teach healthy doctrine. And what we're going to begin to see in Titus chapter 2 is the contrast. If you teach unhealthy doctrine, you teach false doctrine, what happens? It has no transformative power. And you look at all those characteristics that we've observed in verse 10 through 16, and you see nothing but ungodly fleshly deeds. But now we're going to see verse 1 come alive in chapter 1. The knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And now in chapter two, you know what he's going to do? He's going to give his groups. He's going to say, okay, I want you to teach this to the older men. I want you to teach this to the older women. I want you to teach this to the younger women. I want you to teach this to the younger men. I want you to teach this to the bond slaves. And I want you to see as you teach them the word that was delivered, the healthy doctrine produces healthy Christians, healthy living, healthy groups within the local church. So we see a review. We see those opposed. We see a strong contrast. I want to leave you this morning with a passage out of Isaiah. If you'll turn over into Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55. A passage that... um, I really think it's the heart of encouragement to all of us and to the minister of the gospel of Jesus. Um, We look at this passage, it's such a wonderful text, and I think it's one you might be familiar with and not even know you are. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I was reading uh, Paul Tripp years ago, and, you know, when I look at verse 10 and 11, I've always celebrated the fact that the word of God does not return void, right? That we we can trust it. It accomplishes its purpose. But you know one thing I'd never really explored is whether or not the purpose of the word of God was revealed in this text. I think it is. And Tripp helped me with that. Look what the purpose seems to be. Look at verse 12. The purpose of the word of God seems to be in producing worshipers. Look at verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now now notice back in verse 10, it sets the stage. What does he say comes down from heaven? For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven. Now, Now look at verse 13, and I think it'll help us better understand it. Instead of the thorn 
shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. Now, now think with me here, and, and this is something that I think is phenomenal. What happens if you put rain and snow on a thorn bush? Normally, not much. <laughs> you got a wet thorn bush. You just get more thorns. Uh, instead of the briar, you get rain and snow on the briar. Listen to what he says here. I love this. Think with me. If you have a little thorn bush in your backyard and it's nourished by the snow and rain, what do you expect to get? The obvious answer is a bigger thorn bush. If the rain and snow water that briar in your yard, you know the result will be a bigger briar. But then listen to this. But not so with the word of God. When this rain falls on the thorn bush, it actually becomes something organically different. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And he goes on here. The picture here is a fundamental, specific, and personal transformation. And this is the quote I want to leave you with. When the word of God, faithfully taught by the people of God, and empowered by the Spirit of God, falls down, people become different. Lusting people become pure. Fearful people become courageous. Thieves become givers. Demanding people become servants. Angry people become peacemakers. Complainers become thankful. Idolaters come to joyfully worship the one true God. There's transforming power in the word of God. And the man of God is called to hold fast to that word. That word is life-changing. That word not only convicts, that word through the power of the Holy Spirit and the promise and substitution of Christ not only converts, that word transforms. And it's that conviction that gives the church of Jesus Christ a different trajectory than a fleshly church. It recognizes that God has set forth a mandate and we must stick to it. We must follow it with our whole heart. This morning, I think whether you're an elder in the church or whether you're a Christian, we see that we are called to submit to the word of God. We're called to share the word of God. We're called to stand on the word of God in our lives. So I, I pray that as we leave today, that we would uh, be compelled to worship God, to think about not only that he's given us his truth, but to think about the fact of what that truth has already done in our own hearts. Think about it. You realize today, if you're here and you're thinking, man, have you ever... I, I, I want to grow. I, I want to know this truth. Do you realize why? The Holy Spirit has taken his pure word and has done a work in you. Be encouraged. It's that word that not only transformed you, it's that word that transforms others. It's a word that only God can give, and it's a word that we must be faithful to and stand on. Would you bow your head?
Oh, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that the only hope for godly leadership in the church is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would be changed as we look at these verses. God, I pray that it would just bring about gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts as we think about what brings about change in our life. It's through your power. It's, it's through the gift of your son. It's through the power of your spirit working in your word. I pray, oh Lord, that we would learn to be faithful, that we would be dedicated to your word. I pray, Lord, that it would give us courage, that we see the implications of how powerful it is. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize those hills that we are called to die on. I pray that we would be able to articulate a pure gospel of what that means and what that represents. I pray that as a group and community of faith, we would be so overwhelmed by your gospel that we would defend it, we would stand for it, we would boldly proclaim it. And Lord, I pray that we would walk in it as a church. I pray our leadership would follow this mandate closely. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness of giving us your perfect word. It's in Jesus' name we pray.